0: There's a verse in Proverbs that say where there is no vision, the people perish. It means if there aren't leaders offering real solutions or a better vision for the future, things just naturally get worse. Somebody's got to stand up on a hill and go, look, it's going to get better this way. When I talk to you, um, I warn you about all the ways things are trending towards chaos But I also want you to hear from people who are coming up with real solutions, even if they're people that I may not vote the same way with. We have to look for people with solutions. Today, I have one of those solution makers in the studio with me. He's a businessman doing what we are increasingly told is impossible, making their products 100 percent in the USA. He was not always like that. He was part of the just ship the jobs overseas. Let's make money for a long time. Then something happened and he changed. Like all of us, he is watching the U.S. global supply chain erode before his eyes and uh, other business leaders make excuses. He is making plans for a future that prioritizes domestic business. His message should be heard from coast to coast because he's right. So I would like to welcome to stage 19 the founder and CEO of American Giant, Byard Winthrop this holiday season. I want you to grab the protein bar that tastes like a candy bar or even better. It, it, it is a candy bar better than a candy bar. Built bars are filled with so much holiday goodness. They're rich with flavor covered in real chocolate, yet amazingly low in calories, sugar, net carbs and fat. And I know something about fat. Um, they are uh, protein bars, but uh, that sounds horrible. These are candy, gar- candy bars. They're delicious and healthy. Built bars come in so many flavors that you're going to have a hard time choosing. You have the raspberry or the mint brownie. I just had one of their new flavors. Uh, gosh, it was lemon cheesecake or something. They're just great. The holidays are stressful. Part of the stress is I'm going to gain so much weight. You don't have to. Skip the pie, have a built bar. They're going to give you that extra fuel you need to barge in through those mall doors that don't exist anymore and battle all the holiday shoppers that will club you to death if you pick up the sweater or the TV that they want. Ah, it's great. Built Bars can give you the extra something to keep you going. So throw one in your jacket or your purse. You'll never know when you're going to need it. It's Built Bar. Built. Healthy and delicious. Built.com. Use the promo code BEC15. Get 15% off your order. It's Built.com. It is great to have you on. Thanks for Thank having you, me, on. You bet. It's a joy to be here. Um, I don't, we don't know each other. I mean, we've spent, what, 25 minutes together beforehand. Um, and I, I, I don't know your politics. I know you live in San Francisco. Usually that's enough for me to go, okay. Uh, <laughs> but I don't want to know your politics. I don't care who you voted for, or which side you're on. I want to base this on principles. Because I think, you know, my, my staff was like, I don't know if you should keep asking people this. But when you have a conversation and you want to have a decent conversation where you're looking for solutions, you have to know the principles of the people. And we have a real clear set of principles that we've, we're off of now. Nobody's talking about. And there's, the answers are all in there. Yep. So let me ask you. The Bill of Rights. Mm-hmm. Are you with the Bill of Rights? I'm with the Bill of Rights. Okay. <laughs> I mean, it's a weird question to ask, but you I've read enough about you. I know you believe the world is changing. We're at a tipping point, and things do have to change. Mm. But what do you save, mm-hmm. and what goes away? Yep. And too many people are just kind of skipping by. Hey, you know, that's uh, kind of an important corner- cornerstone.
1: yeah. Yep. Yeah, I mean, I think that that when I think about American Giant and kind of why I started the business and and, and when I unpack that all the way down to its basic components, I think we've got to figure out a way to um, identify and pursue the things that bind us all together as a country. And for me, a root of that is uh, jobs and manufacturing and the making of things. And, you know, I had spent so much of my career being on the wrong side of that conversation, I think. You know, moving businesses overseas Mm -hmm. and unwinding domestic manufacturing and seeing the- You were part of that. Yeah, I mean, I I had started off my career in in finance on Wall Street Mm -hmm. and got into manufacturing in the early 90s. And kind of right away, um, I sort of accepted unconditionally all of this idea that you just, you move manufacturing to the cheapest place you can go find things to make things. and started doing that and did it in the beginning of my career unthinkingly but it's hard to avoid over time the impact that has with those decisions that, that have. And, and also the inconsistency of where we were taking the making of our things versus what we were holding our domestic producers to. And I just wrestled with that for a long time. And eventually That's American true. Giant came out of that. But But I think that gets down to a really basic set of things about what are we trying to do as a people, as a group of people that share a whole bunch of values and right. beliefs. So
0: um, I think we boil everything down to and it's so weird as a. As a conservative, I would always people that don't know me would always say like, oh, he's he's for capitalism, you know, and the bottom line and, uh, you know, consumerism. Mm. I hate the fact that we are all about stuff Mm -hmm. and not about principles. Um, And I know you've recently talked about um, getting to a place that this actually covid can help us
1: by bringing the supply chain down. That maybe we get back to quality and not just stuff. Yeah, well, so think about that for a second, right? So, you know, we have a basic philosophy in our business that the closer we are to the people and places that make the things that we sell, the better stewards we are of those products. We take better care of our farmers. We take better care of the people that produce our yarns and our knits and all those things because we know them and they're close and we're Mm -hmm. really integrated with them. Our, our quality, I say this all the time, our quality is so much more the result of the men and women that are in our supply chain than they are of some vision that we hold in our offices in San Francisco. And so, getting closer to things makes better things. Mm-hmm. All, there's also a really important knock-on effect for the communities that surround the places that make the stuff that we make. So, you know, when you go into a factory of ours in Middlesex, North Carolina, the local restaurants do better when that factory's doing better. Mm -hmm. There's good employers, there's good resiliency in the economy, there's people sitting on school boards, Mm -hmm. there's people worrying about parks and the maintenance Mm -hmm. of those parks because there's a a vital community and economy there. And so I I think it it does start there, but what's been interesting during COVID is that what's happened over the last 40 years is we have allowed our biggest businesses to pursue the cheapest means of production all Mm -hmm. over the world most often in conflict to the standards that we hold our domestic producers, meaning, meaning that, uh, you make shoes or you Mm -hmm. make clothes. Big companies have been incentivized to take the means of the, of production of those things and pursue the cheapest labor, the lowest environmental standards, uh, uh, the worst worker safety standards in the world, actual so that slavery they can, in many yeah, cases. Yeah, so that's I mean, you're, you know, I think this has come into focus with Xinjiang, mm-hmm. right? And China, which is a, a a part of China that is, by all accounts, is using uh, forced labor of a minority Muslim population to produce clothing and shoes and other things. We've allowed our biggest brands to do that. Um, at the same time that we are holding our domestic producers to standards that are appropriate, I think. Good environmental standards, mm-hmm. good human rights standards, good safety standards. And so, you know, everyone talks about level playing fields. But right now, we're holding our domestic manufacturers to very high standards while allowing our biggest brands to chase low standards internationally. So, I, that's got to get corrected, I think. That's so got to get rebalanced.
0: Uh, I I I really don't like... Um, this virtue signaling from these uh, companies, because yep. most of them, yep. it's bullcrap. Yep. You know, this this whole uh, build back better stuff was started mm-hmm. with the environment in mind, but that's not what it is. It's mm-hmm. all about money, mm-hmm. you know, and control. Yep. And um, but I do want to do business with companies that aren't jamming stuff down my throat, mm-hmm. but do stand for something. yeah and. W- we have these companies now saying they stand for
1: something right. or leading the way. And right. yet right. they won't speak out against China. Right. And we know why. Right. It's the Instagram effect. Right. I mean, I think it's the difference between walking the walk and, and talking about it. And I, I'm with you a hundred percent. I think we are surrounded in our industry in the apparel world of brands that are the first to Instagram about earth day mm-hmm. or about celebrating pride Uh, or any other social issue that happens to make them seem better to their customers, but they pursue uh, operational practices that are in complete conflict with those values. so I, I I think it's uh, I think it's bad. I think we've got to we've got to hold brands and retailers accountable and policymakers accountable for reconciling those things. But because, how do you how do you do that? Well, it's a, it, obviously it's a really complicated question. I think there's there's a lot of component parts, and I think people tend to ask about go to the consumer first. I think the consumer actually is 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 uh, should be the least uh, the last place we go. But I think it probably starts with policymakers um, trying to really dig into whether we are holding. Uh, I think I think what we have to reconcile with from policymaking standpoint is, is it okay to uh, do business with countries that do not share our basic values? And Um, you're talking you're not talking
0: about you're talking about not people that necessarily uh, don't agree with freedom of speech the way we do. Yeah. But when they are
1: really oppressive. Yeah. I think when it's basic, do we, yeah. do we have, is it okay to say that uh, we're going to produce in countries that don't uh, respect environmental standards or that don't respect human rights? Um, do we pay a living wage to the people that make or the things that we consume? I think we've got, to, we've got to confront that question. And, and obviously, I think we all intuitively understand this to some degree. We don't, we don't go to North Korea to produce a bunch of stuff. Why? Because mm-hmm. we think that's a horribly repressive regime. Mm-hmm. But that's on a continuum with a bunch of other countries. China's behavior in Xinjiang, in my judgment, is pretty close. And so, oh, at, and so at yeah. what point do we decide to say it is unfair to our domestic producers to hold them to a much higher standard than we're holding China? And by the way, along the way... A huge amount of capital is poured into China and modernized that economy, mon- modernized its manufacturing base in a way that we have not benefited from domestically. And so, I think it starts with policymakers. I think they've got to begin to confront that in a pretty base, basic way. And then it goes on to retailers. I think a, a, a company like Walmart has actually been a leader here, where they've really taken a stand and said, we are going to have 8% of the stuff that we sell be domestically produced. Uh, they've an- announced, I a, a, a believe, a $350 billion initiative over the next 10 years. It includes textiles. Uh, But be a leader there. Uh, There are a couple of other big retailers uh, that don't do that. Uh, Amazon is one that Mm -hmm. appears, Mm -hmm. right? That I think people are making a lot of money Mm -hmm. in places like that. And I think there has to be some leadership on the retailer standpoint to begin to say, look, we've got to be a force for good here. We have to be contributing to uh, uh, the, the domestic economy in a way that at least balances out some of our international policies. Um, So I think retailers have to follow. I think once that happens, brands have an incentive at that point to begin to say, look, we're going to make socks domestically or we're going to make T-shirts domestically, Mm -hmm. something. It doesn't have to be everything, Mm -hmm. but it's got to start. And then I think finally consumers, once that begins to happen, I think consumers can have an informed choice about what they're buying. And by the way, just to make the point, some of this stuff is about values. Some of it's about quality and disposability. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, we, we obsess much more about the quality of stuff we make than some kind of policy thing that we're trying mm-hmm. to influence or impact. Mm-hmm. And, and I think you sort of referenced this earlier. You know, we, we throw away a ton of stuff now. And and we all know this. We now buy things that feel like they just kind of fall apart after a year, after mm-hmm. six months, they're basically disposable. And so I think quality is a big part of it too, that when we can stay more local in, in, the, in the way that we source things, we become, uh, we, we take better care of the people and places that make things and we, and we produce better product that it doesn't end up in a landfill. And I think that's, a, that's another piece of it. If you are tired of
0: purchasing a firearm or ammunition in the last year, if you've tried to do it, I mean, did you get the product? There is an overwhelming demand from responsible citizens ensuring that they are protecting their Second Amendment rights. As crazy as things get in uh, on at, in our own local town's I mean, a Christmas parade, a Christmas parade. You never know what is coming. There's another way to defend yourself uh, against guns, and that is ballistic body armor. And that has always seemed like a crazy, who has body armor? I do a job where I've had to wear body armor a lot of days without anybody knowing, and it used to be extraordinarily expensive extraordinarily hot and everything else i want to talk to you about a company ar500 armor this is a way for you to protect yourself and your family god forbid you ever need to use it but when it's happening in our own little small towns you might need it please check out ar500 armor they have made it easy approachable and affordable AR500Armor.com. Buy it online, have it shipped straight to your house. AR500, multiple packages built for citizens just like you. AR500Armor.com Beck. You know, we've, we've talked about the government, we talked about the manufacturing and the stores that sell it, but there's another key thing that is bizarre. If you, if you were probably close to the same age, I joke with my kids all the time. I said, you know, you leave those jeans with grandma and she'll she'll mend them yep. for you because yep. they spend money yep. broken, you yep. know, and and, and repaired. Yeah. We buy T-shirts that look like we've owned them forever yep. to places yep. we've never been yep. before. Yeah. And we are so hungry yep. for authenticity. Yeah. And, but we're just, we're willing to buy, yeah. you know, those, the, the reason why those jeans are cool yeah. when your wallet has yeah. a little yeah. outline in the back yeah. is because it shows right. you've had them forever right. and you were working hard and it ripped and you repatched it because that's, that's, right. that's the kind of guy you are. That's right.
1: We accept fake, authentic things. Yeah. Well, it's funny, you know, when I started the business, uh, we started the business with a sweatshirt, the one that you're wearing. Yeah. And, and it, by the way, is High, high, high quality. Thank you. <laughs> but but we started on the on the idea that we were going to produce a great sweatshirt. We were going to pour our heart and soul into it. We spent about a year and a half developing it. It's hard to get it made domestically. Yeah. But there's a funny story that came out of that. That a lot of the people in the supply chain didn't buy the concept in the beginning. They're like, wait, wait high quality. I mean, why why <laughs> are you? Because the entire yeah. domestic industry, what we say in the textiles, that it's all gone to ton and gun. That means really cheap, really fast production mm. stuff that is kind of just is going to fall apart after three or four months. Just a basic race to the bottom. And we were saying, let's do the opposite of that. Actually, let's go back to the to the the, the model of building jeans that the whole world wants that last forever, that that patina with age, that get yeah. better the more that you wear them. Right. And in our supply chain, the response to that was no one's going to do it. And then eventually, I found one guy, a guy named Paige Ashby in South Carolina, in a small town called Gaffney, who partnered with me to say, we're going to figure this out with you. We'll we'll help you get it done. And what happened? Customers noticed. And I think that's the weird thing is that customers intuitively understand good quality. They get it instantly. Mm-hmm. And the whole chase now in the textiles industry, particularly is over pennies. I mean, you will ha- you will find the major retailers, the oh, major yeah. apparel brands will make decisions about moving from, uh, let's call it, say, uh, inland China to Bangladesh over five cents in the production. They'll move whole production lines that way. And so it is all in this relentless pursuit of trying to get cheaper and cheaper products. Um, but I believe that consumers are in a different place. They're saying, I, I, I hate the fact that I'm throwing stuff away. I hate the fact that I buy stuff that I can't mend. Mm-hmm. You're not going to mend a, a t shirt that you mm-hmm. paid six bucks for that is falling apart after 10 uses. Mm-hmm. So authenticity, I think, comes back ultimately to quality and to values. It's like a brand that stands for something that you believe in and produces a product that you enjoy and that you can stand behind. And that's a pretty, pretty basic script, I think. When Levi's ran their
0: ad that said, uh, we want to be the uniform of the revolution, uh, I grew up wearing Levi's. Yeah. I always wore 501s. Yeah, I love too. them. Me too. Uh, and, uh, but they're not the same. you know. Um, I did my homework. They, The denim was made. Here in America, Cone Mills, I'm sure mm, you know. Cone. Yep, Cone Denim. Um, and Cone Denim is the best, mm-hmm. absolutely the best. So I started a little company of just making jeans. This was 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. Almost impossible mm-hmm. to keep everything domestic. Mm-hmm. If you make a baseball hat, mm-hmm. God bless you, at least 15 years ago, mm-hmm. God bless you trying to get something mm-hmm. of quality yep. from America. Yep. Um, and it, it was... There is something to um, keeping the story alive mm-hmm. and keeping the people. That people at Cone they cared yep. about their yep. product. Yep. You know what I mean. Yep. They're now out of business, yep. um, and we're losing. We're losing way too much.
1: Yeah. Well, not just that. I think that there is a. You know, we have a. We make we make uh, denim. uh, We make a a stretch canvas pant called the Roughneck. Those are made in factories that used to produce Levi's and Wrangler products. Mm. Um, And I think, from our perspective, one of the things that has been really interesting for me, and I've been in the textile world for a long time now, and. Uh, going into these facilities and sitting down with uh, uh, businesses that have been multi generational, have been in the hands of parents and grandparents, are now mm-hmm. being run by the the, the the grandchildren, is getting close to the craft that's underneath it, mm-hmm. and that that uh, that that too is we're getting close to losing that this sort of generational ability. I don't know if if you followed our story to produce a domestic uh, flannel, a yarn dyed flannel, but it was tell it. Well, so uh, when I started the business, I, I knew I wanted to make an iconically American product to launch behind. And the things I thought about were a T-shirt, the kind of classic mm-hmm. American T-shirt, a sweatshirt, the one you're wearing, a blue jean, sort of just like you and I were talking about. I, mm-hmm. Same thing for me. I remember my first pair of blue jeans. Me too. I remember getting them and thinking, it said something about me. Yeah. It said something about me. I was. Yeah. I wore blue jeans. It was a I, different I, thing. I remember
0: when I moved from the, I grew up on the West Coast. Yep. I moved to the East Coast. Yep. And the East Coast didn't wear 501s yeah, you know right. that was not their that's gene right. and right. I was like yeah well that says something yeah about that's you. right 100%. you percent
1: know? and it wasn't a brand thing hundred percent it was it was the difference between the button fly and the zipper fly. that's right yeah. and I remember that moment for me sort of feeling like I was beginning to sort of define myself and kind of come into my mm-hmm. own who I was and the fourth thing was it was a a classic yarn dyed flannel And you'll remember this and you'll understand intuitively that great flannels, the kind that you took out of your dad's closet and were soft and were 20 years old. And they looked better 20 years later than when you bought them. And they weren't thin. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Just beautiful products. Mm -hmm. So those are the four. And I was a guy with an idea. And so we ended up doing the sweatshirt because I thought it was substantial enough to make an impact, but not so hard to do that it was going to kill me trying to make it. But in the back of my mind had always been this idea of doing a yarn dyed flannel. And about three years ago, uh, we got serious about that idea. And I started to tap into the whole textile industry that is still domestic and it's still robust and healthy and interesting and a tremendous amount of knowledge there still. And little by little, I began to get um, an assemblage of people that thought they could pull together a yarn dyed flannel, which we launched three years ago. Um, and it was an amazing thing. I mean, it, We can't keep that product in stock. It is just It is something that whenever we get in, it sells out immediately. But that had almost that capability had almost been lost entirely. Mm-hmm. Uh, it almost all gone overseas, and uh, and it was a similar thing that it, it we were almost calling people out of retirement. These gray hairs coming out and oh, saying, yeah. "I'll show you how to do this." There's there's this a big surprise. There's this huge amount of competitiveness and pride when someone says, "Let's give this a shot." And so I think that's the other, I don't know, irony or frustration about the apparel world is there is so much capability in textiles and apparel domestically. Still just waiting to kind of come off the bench and go all it needs is a little bit of support from DC, a little bit of support from brands and retailers. And that. What part support of the from DC?
0: I mean, I, I don't, again, I don't want to get into politics, yeah, I, I, but I, I am a I'm a guy who believes the less government does, the better. We yeah,
1: are. I think I think let's get up to a very high level and ask a basic question to frame that question for me anyway, which is: Do we believe that having a a diverse and uh, and layered manufacturing component to our economy is important or not? So I, I will tell you, I think a lot of
0: people's minds were changed. I this America first thing bothers me the way yep. some people frame it, which yep. is we're the best at yeah. everything and we're going to nationalistic, just nationalistic. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, but when we don't make our own medicine, yeah. when we can't make the things that
1: keep us alive yeah. as people yeah. That's a problem. Yeah, that's a problem. And I think that that, that you framed it exactly right, which is this gets like everything. It gets just it gets pantomimed into either it is nationalistic and rah, rah, or it's nothing. And I think there's I I think the the question that people have to wrestle with a little bit is, is it healthy to have an economy where at every level of the economy, let's look at manufacturing as a piece of it. You've got vibrancy Mm -hmm. from basic. Level manufacturing, to heavy manufacturing, to pharmaceuticals, to everything. is that Does that make a healthier, more stable economy or not? I am firmly in the camp that it does. I think it has knock-on benefits to communities and to people and entry-level jobs and the opportunity for people to work their way up through their professional careers and to stabilize towns all across the country. Gee, I think it's... Have you ever done any... Have you ever read about Cadbury? No. The candy company?
0: Yeah. You should. Back in the 1800s. I mean, I think they were all socialists yeah, and everything yeah, else. Yeah. But... Their idea was instead of just being a factory that you go to work, let's build a town. And so they actually built the houses, the town, the churches, the stores, everything, the schools, the hospitals. And they were way above. And It was a private company just saying, you don't have to live here, but if you work here, this is one of the perks. And it was a great
1: little town. Yeah. 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 Well, so back to your question, I think there's what what, 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 what can D.C. do at at a basic level? I think we just sort of stated as plainly as I can. We've got, let's say, a yarn producer domestically. Right. Great yarn company. They are held to different standards than their international competitors. Their international competitors are held to uh, much lower environmental standards, much lower human rights, much lower labor standards, safety standards. Is that fair trade or not? So, in other words, you want government to... Yeah, just level, level it. You it, either it, bring them up yes. to their standards, every or you single, every deregulate. single factory that we work with will stare you in the eyes and say, "I'll compete toe to toe with any international provider as long as we are competing on a level field." Yeah, and we are not today, and that's valid. We will. Some of those manufacturers won't be able to hang in there, and they'll they'll fade. Others will be able to compete and out compete. And so, I think that's I, we just have to do that at a basic level. So,
0: the, the the one of the biggest things that has been the the crux of this issue, at least in my head, watching from a distance, has been the the compensation here is just so much higher. Mm-hmm. And I like that, mm-hmm. but it's so much higher. Mm-hmm. And I'm not talking about
1: slaves. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about Good wages mm-hmm. in other countries, living wages, but they're not. Yeah, yeah. living wages. Their cost, yeah, is yeah. So let me just say that back to you. It, it is not to say that that uh, that a country that is on the upswing of their modernization process is going to play pay a minimum wage like eleven or twelve dollars an hour. Correct. That's not going to happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but but let's benchmark that to the local economy have a living wage standard. Sure. That's it. Okay. That's it.
0: But is that you? Because you can't erase that. Yeah. I'm getting the impression that that's not the biggest. Problem.
1: Well, it's so back to my 11, my 11, five, 11 cents of changing from one country to right. another. The reality is, is that is that staying close to your supply chain. And I'll just talk about textiles. It There are some costs that you incur to do that. Higher labor rates, for example. Mm-hmm. But there are also real benefits. Time to market, transportation, inventory levels that you have to carry in, in terms of your ability to be responsive to a marketplace. I believe that the that the if if we had a true commitment to domestic textiles where you could actually modernize those facilities and uh, unlock the opportunity for carrying lower inventory levels with Mm -hmm. closer supply chains, you mitigate in large degree the offset, not completely, but in large degree. And so I think that that there's just a, there's a whole component about responsiveness and closeness to your customer that unlocks a lot of dollars that are not currently being unlocked. And we can get into that if you want, but they're not currently getting unlocked in the textile world domestically. This, what... Bothers me so much is just the
0: I don't know, the circus or the play that has been written that we're all in yeah. and don't recognize it. Yeah. I mean, I believe in global warming. Yeah. I believe it's insane to think that we don't have an effect on the yeah. planet. Yeah. I want a planet for people to yeah. be around. Yeah. I want to be as clean as we can. Yeah. But I don't necessarily agree with all of the crazy stuff mm. that is going on, mm. and we we take our standard of living and dive it down Mm -hmm. that millions Mm -hmm. of people will Mm -hmm. will suffer from Mm -hmm. that
1: Um, the supply chain is a really good example it's a huge part of it I mean I think you know that that point do we believe in uh, protecting the planet and do we believe in global warming and if you do one of the places you would start is looking at how you make things you'd start there Um, and you wouldn't allow brands to Instagram about Earth Day while they were pursuing supply chains that were not helping the planet, right? And so I think that that is that's the play part of it, in my mind anyway. It's that we are in this dance where we allow people that are getting fantastically wealthy by exploiting lower environmental standards to pick one uh, and producing the means of production, pursuing the means of production wherever it takes them. But Instagram about something totally different. I mean, you know. So, it, but is that
0: so? Is that the is that the responsibility of the consumer? I mean, I no. see people talk about global warming on their private jet or arriving in their private jet or even just as simple as I'm
1: sitting here with Fiji water. Uh Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) What? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I don't think it's the responsibility of consumers. I think it's the responsibility of policymakers first and then brands and retailers second and consumers third. I think that policymakers have to penalize uh, supply chains that are exploiting values and standards that are inconsistent with our own. I just don't think that we we can't we can't justify. I'd like to hear the case why it is okay to allow our biggest uh, brands to be producing stuff in a place like Xinjiang, China. Explain that to me. I explain, can't. explain it and reconcile that. If you care about the things that I care about—human rights, uh, the environment, worker safety so explain again, how You reconcile those two things to me. But
0: again, I am. I mean, I've been talking about the Uyghurs since mm. before mm-hmm. anybody knew what mm-hmm. the Uyghurs were. Mm-hmm. And I believe deeply, I mean, the State Department just has come out two times and said, we know genocide is mm-hmm, happening. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't
1: get any more mm-hmm, clear. Mm-hmm. Um, we all know it. Yet I and, still. And, and I believe, just to clarify that, I believe that's the State Department that was under the prior administration. And, and under this. this and this. Administration, yeah, yeah, yeah. And the very few policy things is actually translated through. From Correct. The first from that administration to this one. Correct. And, so and think, the one before
0: that. And the one before, and the one that. before that.
1: Yeah. And, yeah and, but, and,
0: but I still have an iPad. Yeah. I still yeah. buy an Apple product. Mm-hmm. So- how do you break that? Because
1: yeah. it, it that is the consumer. Yeah, no, that's right. And it's and I think that there is this is not. I mean, we do this right with with things like like look at how we incentivize electric vehicles, for example. Right, we have a fairly active role at the federal level incentivizing the changing of, of consumer behavior for goals that we believe that we share nationally. And so I think that there is that's the policymaker part in my mind. I think we've got to begin to say, look, we we'll, we'll trade with any country out there that plays by a basic set of values and rules that we as a country have codified into law. I think that's the basic idea, is let's just get us to a place where we are making things in countries that share our basic values. That, I mean, this whole thing right now with uh, Peng, I don't know how you say her last name, Shui, the tennis player, mm-hmm. and the NBA is two contrasts. Mm-hmm. That's a really good one, right? It's like, I think we believe very much in, in what the WTA is doing. It's like let's let's uh, let's find out what's going on here, mm-hmm. and by the way, if it's as nefarious as maybe people think it is, let's have the courage to take a stand on that, and that is something that needs to go through our general policies and in our industries about what do we believe, and it's not enough for to the great in my judgment anyway, the great credit of the w t a to take a stand and say. Uh, this woman deserves the rights and the protections of mm-hmm. the modern world. And if she's not going to get them, we're not going to participate. I agree. Yeah. So we th- shouldn't be doing the Olympics in China. Well, I, and I think that just in general, we've got to reconcile what we believe with what we do. Right. Just that simple. Just walk the well, walk or not. They have, I mean,
0: John Kerry just came out. Again, I don't want to make this about politics. Mm-hmm. So anyway, John Kerry just came out and he said, you know, we're uh, not doing anything about the genocide. How are you reconciling this? And China's not doing anything on global warming. Mm -hmm. And he said, right, we do recognize that genocide is Mm -hmm. happening, but we have to prioritize Mm -hmm. and global warming, we have to get some movement there. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I mean, I can't believe genocide uh, is in this conversation, but how do you, I mean there's it's 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 everywhere yeah. in power yeah. structures and yeah. I don't mean just government yeah. I mean
1: well, any it, of the big power players yeah i think a couple of things i mean I, I, my my take obviously for american giant it is about just Doing it just, just, just providing alternative examples. So I think that's that's part of it, right? Is that just to have um, individual uh, brands and and uh, and people trying to do it a different way. But from a policy standpoint, I think that you you've got to look at a progressive ratchet that just over a multi-year period says we have to begin to rebalance the way that we're thinking about our trading partners. And that doesn't mm-hmm. happen overnight. It's not mm-hmm. yanking the wheel. But it's generally beginning to say, we've got a set of standards with whom we will do business with, and over time, you've got to comply. And I think that's not that complicated, actually. I think, you know, we figure out a handful of things that are standards that we hold domestic producers to and say we've got to have a mirror of that with our, domestic, our international partners. You want the access to the American market? You've got to comply. If you don't, it's okay, but you can't participate. And you know, I think with the Apple example, I think fair enough. But but Apple's also sitting on a lot of cash and they mm-hmm. can invest in a lot in in alternative means of production that don't mm-hmm. necessarily need to be in places that don't necessarily share our you know our There's
0: lots of places to
1: make those products yeah, not by slip. Yeah, that's right. And yeah. places that maybe are more consistent with, right. or, with our with our value system and the rest of in the rest of the world that shares our that value system.
0: So I just read a study about 75 uh, percent of CEOs think that their wokeness positioning from them is effective, and only 35 percent of Americans even want to hear it. Uh-huh. How do you what's the difference between wokism positioning mm-hmm. and actually doing it and how does the consumer? figure out which is which.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think consumers that are paying attention, I think, intuitively understand um, the brands that they support and what they do. You know, from our perspective at American Giant, it's just doing what we believe. You know, we believe in, I think at its very basic level, we believe that, you know, in the United States, you've got the benefit of really strong environmental standards, really strong worker standards, safety standards, great quality, best in the world, and that's that's worth something, and mm-hmm. we want to operate within that. And you know I, I tell this story that when I founded the company, my, my, my oldest daughter had just been born. she's now 10. and and I it sounds corny to say it, but I was thinking a lot about the legacy I wanted to leave. Mm-hmm. and and I didn't want to leave a legacy of of trying to produce things wherever you know the pursuit of cheap took me. I wanted mm-hmm. to do something different than that. and and I wasn't sure at the time whether that was going to be a big business or a small business, but it was a business I wanted to build, and it was a business that I was going to be proud of. So I think it comes down to that. It's, it's, you know, I don't even know what wokeness means. I I just think people have got to decide whether they believe in their values enough to actually live by them. And that includes the way you make stuff. How scary is that for the average person, a businessman to, to do that, to do that? Uh, it, it hasn't been for me. It's been inspiring. I mean, I think that the, 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 the irony about American giant is we're now we're getting bigger and bigger every year. And we stand in really stark contrast to what the narrative is about apparel out there. Mm -hmm. and, You know, on top of all that, I get the privilege to work with women and men all across the U.S. that are that are growing cotton, that are spinning yarn, that are that are finishing textiles. And they're amazing. And you get to be a part of that. I'm leaving in 10 days to go through the Carolinas to do a big factory tour where we we basically give back a bunch of hoodies to the men and women that make stuff in the southeast. It's inspiring. It's been great for me. And we're you know, the, the consumers are responding and it's beginning to put real pressure, I think, on the brands that tell you it can't be done. So it's a great feeling, isn't it? It's a great feeling. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a great feeling that I think it's just, you just get to, it's also intuitive once you start to do it because you're around these amazing people that are, that are, that are sharing in your success. So, and you,
0: we have an, we have an opportunity right now where America knows it. Most most Americans know because of COVID. Yep. That's right. They know this is not good. Yeah. That's right. And, you know, the, the, You know, parts of the government tell us that this is, you know, just temporary. You know, I had dinner with um, the uh, former um, president and CEO uh, and COO of Toyota Motor Corporation. Uh He explained the just in time, you know, uh, how.
1: Yeah, that's not something you're going to untangle quickly. Right. Well, I mean, so I think that is so interesting what's happening right now, which is for the first time ever. Supply chain is something that living room people in their living rooms are talking about. Mm-hmm. People understand intuitively mm-hmm. that we have built this incredibly complicated supply chain that turns out is very fragile, very subject to massive disruption. When you are when you
0: are down to, as he says, twelve minutes yeah. from arrival to installation,
1: right. Right. just the algorithms right. that run that right. should say. Right. Gosh! Yeah, yeah, and it has all been, by and large, and I'm oversimplifying, but it has all been to unlock the cheapest possible means of production wherever that is, mm-hmm. whether it's Bangladesh or China or some other place. Mm-hmm. And so, the instability of that supply chain, warehousing, and warehousing, chain, and, warehousing mm-hmm. and containers and container mm-hmm. ships and mm-hmm. all that infrastructure and everything else. And I think when that, when there's a whether it's the the Evergrande Suez Canal fiasco or COVID, they expose the fact that oh boy. We not only is this very very fragile, but we've lost real control here. And I think if you let, if you just sort of let your mind wander a little bit and say, you know, just as an example, we don't make penicillin in the U.S. anymore. Basically, it's basically all made overseas. Is that and something- if we
0: do we make it from the basic chemicals that yeah, are made overseas. Right. And so
1: is that something that we ought to be concerned about or not? Should we should we re- use this opportunity? I think we should to to see the fragility of the supply chain and ask some simple questions about how important is it that we've got the ability to make things here still? And beyond just pursuing the cheapest most disposable items out there, is it important? And if it is important, let's start to work towards that outcome as consumers, as brands, as manufacturers, as policymakers.
0: Anybody on a on a a national scale, and I'm not asking for names, but do you see anyone in power actually?
1: I'll tell you doing this. this: so, so we're based in San Francisco, and and I'll tell you that there are a handful in the apparel world of apparel brands, names you'd recognize, um, that are genuinely interested in addressing this question. And I think that inside the walls of of these brands, there is a real desire to be part of the solution. They're in a tough spot. And so, they're looking for ways, in my judgment, at least a handful of ones that have come through our supply chain, have seen our, our par- domestic partners, mm-hmm. to figure out a way to begin to be a part of the solution. And so, I'm actually really encouraged about, in, in the apparel world, because I think, you know, we're purists about it, right, Glenn? We, mm-hmm. we've got, we, we buy everything down to our cotton and our fibers domestically. You don't have to be purist. You, you, you don't have to be so maniacal about it the mm-hmm. way we are. You can just say, I'm going to buy socks domestically. I'm going mm-hmm. to produce something that's more automated. In Mm -hmm. textiles, specifically underwear, towels, hats, Mm -hmm. socks, they they can be highly automated. Um, Just movement there to say, I'm going to have 1%, 2% of my production coming domestically. So I, I think there is. I think there's movement for the first time, and I think it's motivated by money ultimately. I don't mean that pejoratively. I think that the supply chain thing is expensive for brands. This has been a, a horrible situation for most of them, um, and, and I think they're seeing the fact that in our case we're in stock. We don't have supply chain disruptions, and so there's motivated by there's an opportunity here to be a bit more resilient to have some insurance in place by having a mm-hmm. domestic source. So I think it's brought it into the into the front of their minds. But I think there is a genuine desire to begin to make a change here, and it's an. Op- I hope he sees it because it's a moment where I think we can begin to say, "Okay, let's begin to address this." Again, it's got to be throughout the, you know, policymakers all the way down to consumers, but to begin to address it and make a change. There was an article in Bloomberg,
0: I think, um, recently that said Americans need to learn to live more like
1: Europeans. Yep, and. Yeah, 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 I know. So I think I'll, t- I'll give you my version of that <laughs> all right, if good. I can interrupt. Yeah, yeah. I, so, uh, you know, I grew up uh, in the 70s and 80s. And I started off in, in finance uh, on Wall Street and I totally subscribed to libertarian economics. Mm-hmm. It was like unfettered capitalism all the time. Mm-hmm. And I, as I said earlier, I pursued manufacturing decisions in the businesses that I was running that was taking me overseas. And o- over time... You begin to see the implications of those decisions. You begin to see the towns that begin to kind of close down, and the jobs that leave, and the manufacturers mm-hmm. that leave. and And I think that we have we made a decision to oversimplify it, starting about forty years ago, that said we're going to have uh, uh, open and unfettered trade in every instance. It's good for everybody, and the results going to be flat screen TVs that are going to get better and better and yep. cheaper and cheaper. And all that's true. But there have been costs that have come along with that in terms of quality of life and in terms of communities and in terms of resiliency that I think people didn't really think about very mm-hmm. much. And so I don't know what I totally believe anymore. I, I believe in capitalism. I think, I think isn't the problem, though, that
0: we currently live in a world I've never seen before where there is
1: no nuance, yep, that's you right. are either that's right. all of that's this right.
0: or all of that. That's And right. that is that's not right. doable. That's right.
1: Yeah, and it's also just, a, it's a, that too is part of the play. Yeah. It's like, you know, I just wrote in our catalog, you know, we spend so much time as a country looking at all the things that divide us. And I don't buy it. I, I think, think that, I think that- If the, you the, travel America, you know that's yeah, not true. And I just, you know, I spend half of my time in, in factories in places like Texas and South Carolina and North Carolina and half my time in the Bay Area and that contrast really instills a great sense of hope in the country and in the people. It, it's the people that are, you know, that are trying to divide us to further their own careers yeah. that are the problem. And I just, I think that's, you know, we've got to throw that off. We've got to stop. We've got to stop that nonsense because it's bad and it's just, it just, it, it undermines who we are as a people and, and all the things that bind us together. So, and, and to, your, to your point about Germany, there's some truth to that. Right. That there is in some ways, Europe has almost become a more free market than than the United States has because it's got a much more varied economic structure. I mean, the trades and the manufacturers are highly valued in places like Germany, you know, and and the quality of life comes through. I tell you, there's uh, I'm a big watch freak Uh, and I'm a watch
0: freak because. I love the fact that it might take one guy a year to make that watch. You know what I mean? And that that has been passed on to his grandson who's now doing it. You know, I just love that. And if you look, for instance, at the old Soviet Union, when they went against the entrepreneur, um, they, the watch factories, they left if they could, or they were killed. Yeah. Russia had a hard time yeah. as a Soviet Union doing things yeah. because they couldn't yeah. keep accurate yeah. time yeah. for a long time. Yeah. And you 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 just there is something about um, there is something not just almost mythical or fable like that you look at yeah. an entrepreneur and go that is so cool yeah. but there is something essential. Yeah that we have and oh, we yeah. support these people who are- Oh, yeah.
1: Yeah, that's my point earlier about what's been so inspiring about American Giant is that you, you come with me through our supply chain and you meet these men and women that have been doing this for a generation or two and their knowledge of cotton fiber or of knitting or of yeah. finishing is totally inspiring. And that, there's so much value in that in the industry that, that is, not, that is f- let go when we abandon it. So, I, I, I mean, it is there is, there is uh, it's there. Waiting to get unlocked. I think we've just got to, you know, we've got to modernize and invest and believe in and commit to in a way that just we haven't for the last, you know, forty years. We've got to change course. And I, I'm not in the camp of saying it's impossible to do. I think it just takes some some vision and some commitment. So, <laughs> you may not know the answer to this. It has nothing to do with, well, I guess it does kind of. It's a supply
0: chain thing. I was driving home yesterday. Yeah. Driving home with a, a friend, and and we're we're driving, and he said, "Man." <laughs> These trucks are everywhere. When did we have so many trucks on the road? And I said, "Mm, two things. One, that's a good thing. Two, I don't think there are more trucks on the road. I think we've just gone for 18 months without any trucks. And now it feels... are there more I don't, trucks on I don't the know road?
1: The, I don't know the answer to that. What I have heard is that, um, to your point earlier about unlocking the supply chain challenge that we're in the middle yeah. of right now, that one of the challenges is the infrastructure and container ships, trucks. Those things take a long time to increase capacity there because those two are sort of tuned around a just-in-time inventory process. And so, uh, what I've heard is that there is an increased capacity. I think you're probably right, which is that part of the supply chain is winding up and trying to hustle to kind of get to address some of the things that are kind of holding everybody back. But I don't know. It's an interesting observation. Yeah, I, I,
0: the only reason why I found it interesting is because it doesn't take very long to forget. Yeah, You know yeah, what I mean? Right. It seems foreign to have that many trucks on. And I think we probably have about the same amount of yeah, trucks on the I think road that's right. right now. Um, and that brings me to the thing that I worry most about. John Huntsman Sr. was a good friend of mine. Yeah. Um, and he was... He's the guy who came up with the Styrofoam, uh, you know, yeah. uh, McDonald's yeah, containers yeah. and stuff. Wow. He was a petrochemical guy. Yeah. And at one point, when he was trying to make that mold, um, he was broke. And he just knew that those would be yeah, huge. Yeah. And he had to come up with a way. Sitting in his office one day, and there's a gold record on the wall. And I said, John. I'm trying to piece together. Did your company make the vinyl for albums? What? And he said, no. He said, I was down on money. I had this idea. And he said, so I thought, how can I make a bunch of money quickly? He said, before there was K-Tel Records, you'll remember that. He said, I was the first one to come up with a compilation album for Christmas where I just put all these different artists on. And he said, I made a fortune and I put it into buying the molds. Yeah. Yeah. And he told me at, towards the end of his life, he said, I don't think we have to worry yet about China eating our lunch in business. And I said, really? And he said, my friends in China tell me over and over again, we can clean your clock everywhere except for that entrepreneurial. Innovative, optimistic. I can yep, do it. Totally, yeah, totally. And Back to the trucks on the road. Yep, it doesn't take us long to forget. Yeah, and I'm so concerned about everybody saying you can't do it. Oh yeah,
1: all come of this crap. Come on, it's crap. I mean, it just I say this to everybody: come, come travel the supply chain with me. You get you get through our supply chain from the gins to the yarners to everybody. You realize really quickly that optimism and entrepreneurial spirit is alive and well. I think the the the, the risk is that you you stifle that enough. So that those businesses move overseas, those towns kind of wither on the vine, there isn't vitality there anymore. And there's there's an entrepreneur in waiting in every small town across the U.S. They just need the right, the right infrastructure, the right school system, the right opportunity to go unlock mm-hmm. it. And so what I worry about is that I think that if we buy into this narrative that we don't need to make things in this country anymore. And we don't need to invest there. I think that has much broader implications beyond just where stuff is coming from. It's got implications in towns and communities, and that entrepreneurial, optimistic drive that I think is so inherent in this country. Oh yeah. So, yeah. so I, I, I don't, I don't buy it. It's there, but I do think we have to start paying attention to it and start to address it because if, if we let it go for another. Ten, fifteen years, I, I do get worried about it. I think that you begin to take away that vitality oh, yeah. and that entrepreneurial spirit. And just that's, maybe that yeah. is America. That is America. That's that right. is that America. opportunity and that ability to, to to do something and have an idea and pursue it with you know vitality. And and I worry that that's the more that we deaden uh, all the towns and communities all across the country, uh, the more worried I get about that. So I think that's something that we do need to begin to confront. Do you think COVID? I mean, look at the beginning.
0: I think everybody did their best. Everybody was just like, we don't know what it's, it was scary. We have no idea. They're welding people in their homes in China. Now it's a different story, but we put so many people out of business. Mm -hmm. And I thought, you know, if you're somebody who was born in 2000, you were eight and you watched your parents struggle because of the banking crisis, then they maybe built it back. And then they were put out of business because of this. You can very easily see a twenty twenty five year old going. This system
1: doesn't work. Yeah, right. That's right. Well, that's that, and that's part of the problem too, right? Is that that loss of faith, right? And I, but I think you know, I'll just give you a, a contrast to that. So we we if you can remember, if you can rewind back to March when that when the year year and a half ago time does yeah time is weird yeah. now, isn't it? When the pandemic hit, uh, we got a call from our a partner, our supply chains, an important. Um, yarn supplier in the U.S. who had gotten a call from the White House saying, "We need masks. We got to get masks into New York City." Hard to remember this, but there was a period there in March and April where yeah, frontline remember. workers, ambulance drivers, yeah, nurses, yeah. doctors couldn't get masks mm-hmm. in New York City. Mm-hmm. They're getting overwhelmed. And call went out, and it was we got the call. Six other producers in the in the in the U.S. got the call: Haynes, uh, Fruit of the Loom. Sanmar, a bunch of others, and Glenn in in I don't know ten days mm-hmm. we had come together, we converted our facility in Middlesex, North Carolina to making masks and I think it was it took us ten days to do that. and we were producing collectively millions of masks within two and a half weeks. and we don't make masks. we make t-shirts and sweatshirts. Um, but that happened through this remarkable innovative mm-hmm. Uh, collaborative effort that went across an entire industry, many of whom were competitors. Um, and it, I have to tell you, it was one of the more inspiring, revitalizing things I've been through in my career. And and just seeing the, from a you know, big surprise, from the White House down to uh, first year employees in the factory floor, doing everything that was required to get masks made and moving. And so I think that that optimistic entrepreneurial spirit That's is just we are. oh and it's waiting to get unlocked yeah it is. it's just sitting there it is it's just sitting there and our economic problems are so e- unleash the American. yeah people. and it's also it's to your point it's the people saying no and in my judgment that starts in dc it's that you have a bunch of careerists there that are not interested in my judgment of really thinking about how do we find the things that bring us together and invest in the things that are going to make the, the country Healthier with better educational systems and better opportunity and level playing fields for people, they're more interested in getting us to separate. So I, you know, it's
0: interesting that you bring that up about the masks, because I think there's two points on that, um, the two two other side stories to that that tell you everything. Um, first, uh, the fact that they said masks aren't good, so you shouldn't wear them. Instead of saying, look we have a shortage of masks and we want to get to a place where everybody, but we need them here. And trust that the American people, because I did, I took the masks that I had and I brought them to the local hospital. Uh, And I know tons of people who did that. Trust the people. Then the next thing was, um, everybody was screaming at the president to uh, invoke an executive order Mm -hmm. to force these companies Mm -hmm. to do it. Mm I, I was talking to a, a good friend of mine. He wrote a book called American Forge, mm-hmm. and it's the story about how America was literally tra- training with broomsticks mm-hmm. in 1938 because yeah. we didn't have guns. Yeah. Okay, yeah. To 1942, yeah. we're starting to overwhelm Germany yeah. with yeah. planes and, yeah. industrial, and might. Uh, industrial might. Yeah. Okay. And it happened because companies yeah. weren't forced yeah. to; yeah. they just decided, yeah. "I want to be a part of it." Yeah,
1: I mean that's sort of a, it is a it is a it is a, a an appropriate analogy to the mask, and I don't mean any way to suggest that we were similar to that that no, massive no, but it is. effort. But but it was uh, it was a remarkable thing to watch, and in a very short period of time, people from big companies like Hanes doing everything in their power yeah. to help. Uh, our sewing floor gets stood up and producing, and it happened at lightning speed. And so, I just think that's you know that is that is that's the country, right? That's the country in the coasts, in the middle, and 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 I mean, strip it all down. We all want to raise good kids, build a good life for ourselves, do good along the way. And I just think that we've got to figure out a way to unlock that a little bit and believe it and trust it a little bit. So he
0: he said this author said yeah. to me, and I'd like to hear your opinion. He said, Glenn. I was asked by the Pentagon, this is five years ago, I was asked by the Pentagon to come in and talk about that time period. And they asked me, do you think that spirit still exists? He said, I think it does, except we have companies like Google and and Facebook or uh, uh, Microsoft that are not... They 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 are looking at their own interests and they they kind of distance themselves from the United States, Uh you know, and he said, I'm not sure if that would uh, take hold the same way. I'm not sure about those companies, but I am sure about pretty sure about the rest. Do you agree with that or not? I think,
1: uh, yes. I, I, let me tell you what I think. I think that, that the, the the challenge for these big public companies that are making lots and lots of money is they are incented to look at quarterly financial reports and to drive bottom line performance. And they've allowed themselves, and we maybe can be critical of that, to not engage fully in anything much beyond that, right? That I'm just going to look at at, at at becoming you know more and more profitable. And so I I do think that there's a lot of decisions that are being made by the big companies, maybe even particularly the big tech companies Mm. that are not always in the best interests of of the broader country. Um, Well, I would I would put the NBA and and everybody else into
0: that category or you are offending your national home. Yeah. yeah. And and you and you're taking a side against that and you won't. Yeah, you I mean, won't say so, you speak so, so, out against China cuz that's a bigger yeah, market. So, so
1: let's let's maybe spin the politics a little bit. You know, President Obama got a lot of heat for saying, I even forget the context, but saying you didn't build that, right? Mm-hmm. That you And and I he he got knocked around a lot on that. I choose to take that in the best way, which meant you had the benefit of, of coming mm-hmm. up and starting a business in the, con- in the construction of the United States that provides all of these things, including values, including, including mm-hmm. worker safety and environmental protections. And I, I think that the, he's right in that regard, that, that you have the, the great privilege to start a business in this country, and maybe if you're lucky to get wealthy doing it. Mm-hmm. But you've got to honor, I believe, that infrastructure somewhat, by at least, and I think this gets back to your point about the MBA, the MBA versus maybe the WTA. That that part of that is that you are the, uh, in some degree, the steward of those values, mm-hmm. and it is not okay, in my judgment, to get very very wealthy by ignoring those values. And and I think that's uh, that's where, um, and, and so so I think that's I think that's that's the the difference in my judgment. I do think that the the rest of us are sitting here um, very much wanting to uh, be together and to, and, to, and to pursue that entrepreneurial spirit. I don't, I think that, I don't, I'm not negative about that. I disagree with your, with your, with your friend in that regard. Yeah. I, I think it's still very I do much too. there. So I,
0: I, um, I, it's an interesting thing. I, I was talking to my daughter. Um, I'm a big. How old is she? Uh, she's 30. Yeah. Okay. And uh, she said, um, we, we share a lot in common in music uh-huh. and um, we're both enamored with um, Billie Eilish and nah. her brother, nah. Phineas. Nah. The, the parents are amazing. Yeah. They don't agree with anything politically, yeah. but I would love to yeah. sit down to the, yeah. with them because they produce two amazing children. Yeah. And, um, and so Phineas just came out with his own album and I found myself, it's very political-ish, uh-huh. and I found myself listening to it and I'm like, I know his politics. Yeah but these lyrics speak to me. And I said, I called her up and I said, or I texted her and I said, what, what, how do you, what do you, how do you take these lyrics? And she said, dad, I think he's just recognizing his privilege. And uh, I text back, what the F does that even mean? Uh. Recognizing privilege. And we talked about it. And um, I don't think there's a, Different. We separate ourselves, but I'm not recognizing my privilege to the mob. Yeah. But I, I feel a responsibility of looking to my God uh-huh. and looking to history and recognizing I, I won the lottery yeah. by being born here. Yeah. I won right. the lottery. That's right. And so when I make a mistake. I will admit it and learn from it. Yeah. I want to include everybody I possibly yeah. can, but I recognize my privilege
1: to my God yeah. and through my actions. Yeah. yeah, and there's another part of that too, which is just because I mean you and I, I'm sure, disagree on a bunch of things, mm-hmm. that doesn't mean we can't have a lot of things that we agree on and find commonality. and have, have good discussions about stuff. Of course, way more, more in common. common. Way more in common than our politics. And I think that we've lived. We're in a time now where that piece is broken. And I think that I think that's where at least some of the tech companies are playing are, are not a force for good. I think that that's. Um, I think that it's allowing us to distill down our differences as if it is everything, and if we disagree on something, we got to disagree on it all. And I just think that's terrible. I'm glad I'm glad to hear your, your daughter's texting you that. Yeah, She's yeah, keeping yeah. you on your toes. Yeah, oh that's yeah. Good. And I like that. I mean <laughs> that's, I, good. that's right. I've always right. hired
0: people that I don't want to be the smartest guy in the <laughs> room right. and I don't also want to have a bunch of people agree with that's me. That's right. You know? That's great. Um
1: let's talk about you personally yeah. for a bit. Um You know Tony Robbins? I it's well I'll tell you a funny story about that. I don't. I but I've I have become an admirer of his because I I watched the documentary, I'm reading very little about him. Yeah. And and Amazing. found yeah, found myself I'd sort of uh, just diverge for two seconds. Uh, Tony Robbins and Stephen Covey's book, Seven Habits, have been things that have been on my mind a lot during the pandemic because I've been thinking a lot about how amazing the team is at American Giant and how much potential has been unlocked over the last year and a Mm -hmm. half. And I had pantomimed both of those people as you know, self-help gurus that I never took seriously. Mm-hmm. And my opinion about both of them has changed a ton in the last 18 yeah. months. So, um, so Stephen Covey,
0: Yeah, who, uh, I had personal experience with huh. him for a long time and knew he was solid, but yeah. Tony Robbins, yeah. I was the same way. It's yeah. kind of like, you know, yeah. some of those preachers like, eh, yeah, yeah, really? Yeah, yeah. Um, and he's so over the top. Yeah. Um, but, uh, uh, we become friends huh. and, Talking to him, I mean, he has gone through amazing yeah. illnesses yeah. right now. Na- right yeah. now, no, I didn't know that. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, and he is mind over matter. Yeah. And when I saw that you get up every day and take a cold shower, yeah.
1: he goes in a plunge pool. I saw that in the documentary. Yeah. And. And he That's real, by the way, Glenn. Real? Oh yeah. I know. No, no, but it's real. The cold thing is real. So that's yeah. I mean, I really I want and the other thing is that there's a you you got a sick dedication to it. Because at a certain point right now, the water's getting really cold right now. Yeah. And so it's particularly tough. So I I, I want to ask you about yeah, that. Yeah.
0: Because he does it. He said, <laughs> yeah. I tell my body. Yeah. My mind tells my body. I don't care. I'm in charge of That's you. That's exactly right. Is that
1: what you yeah. do? Yeah. Well, yeah. It, 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 so there's that part of it, which is I say this a lot, which is it happens every single morning for me, and it's dark out when I get up, and and I say to myself, I really don't want to do that. It doesn't feel good getting a freezing cold shower, but I said do exactly that. I, you don't get a, you don't have a say in this. That's what we're doing. But the, the more important thing to me is that I start my day with doing something hard, and so everything from that point forward feels like I can tackle whatever the day's got in front of me. It's great. You got to try it. Just try it. Just try it, do, do, do this. Be- <laughs> Do I look like yeah. a disciplined man? Yeah, of course you do. <laughs> you need. You gotta give yourself 30 days. Just to say for 30 yeah. days, I'm gonna do it. You can do anything for 30 days. Do it for 30 days. And I think by the end of that, I mean, there's a reason why, why most ancient traditions have versions of hot and cold plunges. Right. Right. I really do think, I mean- So what have you gotten out of it? What, what does well, it- I think the most How long have you done it? Oh boy, years. Why did you start doing it? I started because I I'm, I'm super interested in this is not interesting but I but I'm super interested in sleep and and no, energy I'm levels very and, and yeah, in sleep. I'm really interested in all those yeah. things and kind of how and how you unlock a, 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 uh, your maximum effectiveness and I read some articles about um, uh, the impact on uh, cold plunges or cold showers on. Uh, um, mood and sleep and energy levels. And so I just tried it Um, and I had spent some time in Japan and some of my previous careers and, and been in impossibly cold plunges and impossibly hot plunges there and seeing these vital men and women that were doing it. And so I got inspired to try it. Have you, have you seen the, what is it? Cryo freeze? I've seen them. I've never done that. I've done that once. Uh, that seems a little miserable to me, but I've never done it. See, the shower seems more miserable to me. It does. You got to yeah. try it. But so, so let me yeah. just tell you, let me give you the pitch on it for two seconds. <laughs> okay. So so, so the, the, the reason why I think it's interesting is that, A, it does get this, you get this mindset for me anyway, that feels like I've done something tough to start my day. And so now I can kind of tackle anything. So that's a nice kind of psychological boost. But there's also an endorphin rush that happens. When I kind of come out of that shower, I just feel I can have had the worst night's sleep and I feel... Up, I mean, I feel honestly like my mood. Seeing my kids get up in the morning, I'm just can't wait to see them. It just starts my day well. Wow, I really think it's kind of like the near death experience. (laughs) (laughs) And and I'll tell you the way I do it, which is not the way everyone does it. It's not the way Tony Robbins does it. I start my shower hot, and then I, you know, I'll be in there for a few minutes hot, and then I go dead cold for the last like five minutes. And it's only bad for the first ninety seconds. Come on, Glenn. You can do that. Because you go numb. (laughs) You basically do. And after 90 seconds, you feel fine. And you get out. And it's great. Right. But one other thing I'll tell you, Jimmy Carter, I have heard, who is at 97 Mm. and fighting off brain cancer and everything else. I have heard he is taking cold showers basically his whole life. Mm. And I watched him speak once. And whatever you may think about his politics, that guy is sharp as a tack at 96, 97. And I saw that and I said, okay, he's doing something right. Let me, yeah. figure, out, let me figure out what well, he's I doing. Well, I will tell you that, you know, I saw Tony,
0: I was in Los Angeles and I saw him backstage. I went to one of his yeah. things yeah. and I was with him backstage yeah. and he was on a trampoline. Yeah, I've jumping, have yeah. okay? And he's just jumping, jumping, jumping. And I know what he was going through. Yep. he's He ate fish every day yeah. and he, yeah. i think he got too much mercury oh, no, or kidding huh? Yeah. And yeah. he had toxic levels oh, well. that he should have been mm-hmm, dead. Mm-hmm. And it takes a long time yeah. to get that huh. back in. And he had been suffering from it for about a year and a half. Oh wow. And could barely function. And um and I, I was talking to him backstage and I'm like, how are you doing this on stage for three yep. solid days? Yeah. And he said, yeah, starts with the
1: plunge. Yeah. yeah. I mean, mind, body, spirit, right? I think it's just sort of you get those three things kind of functioning correctly. You can do a lot. So I, I'm a real believer in that. You called yourself recently a belligerent optimist. Uh, what does that mean? I just think that um, our best days are in front of us and I can't stand naysayers. I can't stand. I was told by so many people about American Giant. You can't do it. And uh, I just don't listen to that stuff. I think. Uh, you know, I, I, when I was a, a young kid, I lost a lot of weight and it taught me that you can overcome things and you can, uh, um, I think that was an important lesson for me to learn that, you know, hurdles can seem big, but you just got to get after them and get over them. I think, I think, you know, it just is, uh, it's the way to live your life. Yeah.
0: Uh, somebody called me once a, uh, optimistic catastrophist huh? because I, I see catastrophe like, I. You don't want to be with me on the Titanic uh, from the time we leave to the iceberg because I'm like, it's have you crash. counted the lifeboats? <laughs> yeah, something goes wrong, but the minute we hit, I I'm like, you. we're gonna be fine. We're gonna make it. Come on, let's all pull together. You know, that's great. <laughs> it's this weird thing <laughs> that I have, uh, and there is there is a great need for people like you. That when we hit the iceberg, which I think we've already started to hit the iceberg, that they say, let's go, let's go, because I really believe our problems come from us being so blessed. You know, we are not we lack gratitude, humility, um, and we have forgotten who we are and You know, we saw it in, um, uh, what is it, It was Shaga. Uh, No, how do you say the name in? Waukesha. Waukesha. Um, We saw that in Waukesha. Mm -hmm. It could have gone violent. Mm -hmm. It didn't. Mm -hmm. Everybody came together, Mm -hmm. and that's who we are. That's when we're at our best. Yep, I agree. You are a delight.
1: Thanks, Glenn.
0: I'm thrilled to have met you and to still not know how you voted. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you had me on Glenn thanks it was a pleasure thank you appreciate God it. bless just a reminder I'd love you to rate and subscribe to the podcast and pass this on to a friend so it can be discovered by other people